Welcome to episode 180 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, author of What, When, Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Jen Stevens, author of Delay, Don't Deny, Living an Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and jenstevens.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice or treatment. So, pour yourself a cup of black coffee, a mug of tea, or even a glass of wine, <laughs> if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. 
New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 180 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hi, everybody. How are you today, Jen? I am so excited. Why? I actually don't know why. Wait, why? (laughs) Normally, I feel like I know. (laughs) Well, it's going to be old news by the time this podcast episode comes out. But as of the date that we're recording it, tomorrow on supermarket checkout shelves everywhere, Women's World magazine is hitting the stands. And I've got my first glimpse at the finished article. Yesterday, they sent me a PDF of it and also the cover. Now, of course, you know, one caveat, they have to throw their crazy claims on there, which you know I didn't say. It claims on the cover, lose 19 pounds in 14 days. Now, would I ever say that in a million years? No. And I did not say that. I told no one that, nor would I ever. But, you know, I guess make people pick up the magazine, right? But the article doesn't... (laughs) I do not say that in the article, but the article is actually very well written, and I'm proud of it. It features Fast Feast Repeat. The cover photo is of one of my moderators, Paige Davidson, who lost 108 pounds at the age of 57. It's fabulous. It opens with a quote from Krista Verity and her latest research on time-restricted eating. It talks about fast, feast, repeat right after that. There's a great quote where they talk about me saying that a pound a week is a good goal, (laughs) not to expect a lot of quick weight loss. So at least they have that in there. I'm really happy to see. They have a section from Jason Fung. They have a section from Dr. Mark Matson from Johns Hopkins. He's the one who wrote the um, New England Journal of Medicine article that came out in December of 2019. And he actually says time-restricted eating, quote from him, is one of the best things you can do for yourself, which is huge. And so and it ends with you know a picture of the cover of Fast Feast Repeat, which is thrilling. That is really exciting. It's really exciting. What's it called again? The actual magazine? Women's World. You see it at every, you know, at every supermarket checkout. It's right there. Always got some kind of crazy weight loss claim on the cover. And and what was the claim? 19 pounds and how long? 19 pounds and 14 days. I wish I could have convinced them to say, you're going to lose weight really slowly, but it's okay. That's how I would have written it. But that, I don't know, maybe maybe people would have been so shocked by, you know, lose weight slowly and keep it off. They would have picked it up. I'm just curious because that's such a specific number. <laughs> like, where did they come up with that? Well, Paige talked about how she lost a lot of weight right at first. And so I think they got that from her story. Oh, does she lose 19 pounds in 14 days? Well, she said they got that part actually a little wrong. It was something close to that, but not exactly. I'm looking over that part. I wish that they had said, you're going to lose about a pound a week after the adjustment phase, and that's great. (laughs) But that doesn't sound as exciting, I guess. But it's what I would have written. Oh, right. Because in your book, the weight loss is after the 30 days, but they took out that context in the article. Yeah. I mean, that's not in there at all. The 28-day fast start. But you know, they say several things from me. And the quotes are are pretty solid. You know, there's not one thing that I said that I read and go, oh, that's not really what, no, there's nothing like that. So that's good. And the article, like I said, is very solid. And the writer did an excellent job, you know, other than the the spin on the cover, which, you know, is going to make people have unrealistic expectations, like all of those covers always do. 
I would like to have it not say that, but I'm focusing on the positives, which is I am quoted in an article with Verity, Fung, and Matson. I mean, and Jen Stevens. Anyway, that's just really, it is really exciting. And, you know, it features Fast Feast Repeat. I'm going to pick up a copy tomorrow. Well, do. Well, yeah, it's going to be on the stands September 3rd through 9th. It's the September 14th. Is That's the date it says on the cover. But they come out, you know, before the date. By the time September 14th rolls around, it shouldn't be available anymore. A new one will be out. But anyway, hopefully everyone got a chance to see it. And I hope everyone knows, if you know me, anyone that knows me would know, I would never say that you will lose 14 pounds in 19 days. I mean, no, 19 pounds in 14 days. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't say that. I wouldn't even say expect to lose 19 pounds in 19 weeks. You might not. I mean, if you have a ton of water weight, you've got, you know, some kind of issue with a massive amount of water retention, that's the only way. I mean, no one on earth is losing, you know, 19 pounds of fat in 14 days. You're just not. Yeah. I think it's like probably impossible physically to do that. Now I'm wanting to like run numbers in my head, but yeah. I mean, you would have to weigh a whole lot, but for it to be fat, I don't know. I don't think, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Because just a a pound of fat is how many calories? 3,500 is the standard number. Although I've read an analysis that no one can justify where that number came from. Story of life. Yeah. Like it's just common knowledge, but Zoe Harcomb, I think, is the name of the person that wrote the analysis that I read years ago. Have you heard of her? No. She's in the low-carb community, I believe. It was years ago I read her analysis. She's, I think, from the UK, and she's maybe a dietitian. I can't remember. I'm just, that's what I think. And it was an analysis of why do we think that it's 3,500 calories per pound? And she said she went everywhere trying to find the origin of that and couldn't figure out where that came from. So. That's really funny. I mean, maybe there is a fabulous origin, but she just wasn't able to find it. That's possible. Anyway, no, do not expect to lose that much weight. But it's just very exciting to see, you know, intermittent fasting presented in such a great way. Other than that one little claim, the rest of the article is very solid. That is so exciting. I'm excited to go pick it up tomorrow. Me too. I'm going to definitely be at the grocery store. (laughs) Will you sign a copy? I was going to say for me. <laughs> Are you going to go sign copies at the grocery store? No. <laughs> I am not going to do that. I wonder if they would like kick you out. I figure someone buying Fast Feast Repeat is my target audience, but at the grocery store, someone buying Women's World, no. But hopefully, you know, it'll bring people to Fast Feast Repeat. And then when they read it, they will see, okay, I'm not expected to lose weight the first 28 days. Yeah, I think being realistic is important. So... Next step, solve the way they promote these things at the checkout counter. I was unable to solve that problem, but maybe we can get them to portray things differently. I don't know. I doubt it. (laughs) That would be a great goal. It's like a goal for life. I know. I was excited. What's up with you? Anything new? I mentioned this. I've started to do dry needling, which you have not done, correct? Never. Listeners, I would love to hear people's experiences. It's to target like muscle tension and pain and things like that. So I've been doing it in my jaw. Are you doing it yourself or someone doing it? Oh, no. <laughs> I didn't think so. But when you said that, I got suddenly like, maybe Melanie, I mean, I could just imagine you lying in your in your freezer of water, sticking needles in to that point. <laughs> so I've had some intramuscular glutathione sitting in my fridge for like a month, but I've been too scared to do it. 
because I'm too scared to stick something into my muscle. But I got the dry needling done. I was like, I can do this now. I actually can do that. I can. I had to do allergy shots. I gave myself allergy shots years ago. Was it subcutaneous though or muscle? I can do either. Subcutaneous is totally fine. Well, yeah. And that's super easy. But muscle, I'm like, "Mm." I had to do that with the HCG diet. Yeah. Yeah. I did it with that back in the day. But glutathione, nobody tells you it burns. So that that was an epic fail. So when I was getting the dry needling though, okay, are you ready for my Monday? This is my Monday. Getting dry needling, getting it in your jaws, like one of the most painful things I think I've ever experienced. Yes, it is. Two, he was started doing my neck. And right before he did it, I was like, what if he like pierces a vein? And then he did. I literally thought I was going to faint. And then I got out of it and I realized my Apple ID was compromised from the Philippines. And <laughs> like everything was just, just crashed and burned. That's my life. Yeah. It's always awful when something like that happens. Like if you go to Twitter, there's a Jen Stevens. Someone stole my Twitter account, Jen Stevens, years ago when I wasn't really using it, when I was just a school teacher. Someone stole your actual account. Jen Stevens. Yeah. Someone stole it. And so now I have to be Jen underscore Stevens because I no longer have the email address that was associated with the one I set it up like back in 2012. And I'm like, I promise this is me. You know, it's not even a picture of me. It's So if you go to the old Jen Stevens, there's like a picture of me and then someone else <laughs> that's not me. And they stole it. This was people, I guess, got my Apple ID. And so they were like buying all this stuff. And they said all, they said all of my devices were infected with like Trojans. And I was like, what? But they fixed it. They were like on top of it. Apple did? Mm-hmm. It's really impressive. Like you call and they fix it like while you're on the phone. It was like so fast. I was like, wow, I did have to pay for security now going forward. So, well, that's really exciting because Twitter could not help me, but it was because I didn't have that email address anymore. Yeah. And that's, you know, frustrating since they don't go with you, you know, when you change providers from one internet provider to the other. I mean, others can, but that one did not because I changed internet providers and (sighs) yeah, modern world. So that's that. Shall we jump into everything for today? Yes, let's get started. All right. So to start things off, this is from a Melanie. I didn't realize that. The subject is body needing IF question mark exclamation point. And Melanie says, hi, Jen and Melanie. I am a 32 year old twin mama who has been doing IF for the past 20 months. I started very gradually after having heard of your podcast by complete coincidence on another show. I wonder what other show. Melanie, can you let us know? Please email us. And I'm really curious. Okay. She said, I never thought I would be able in a million years to fast as I have been a cereal snacker all my life. I've been successfully able to get to a 24 and also regular 24 hour fasting. I usually stick to this fasting schedule during the week and stick to a very healthy diet with a 12, 12 hour window on weekends. My two-year-old toddlers refuse to eat if I'm not eating with them on the weekend. I do not have this issue during the week as they go to daycare very early and eat breakfast with their educator. I have not been losing weight with IF since I began, but I was a little underweight to begin with. My goal was mostly to gain energy. Hello, two-year-old twins here and also manage my Crohn's symptoms, both of which have greatly improved with IF. So with all this being said, my question is, can the body get to the point of needing IF to feel good? As time passes, I realize I always feel so sluggish and bloated on weekends, even though I eat healthy. 
Is it possible that eventually the body gets so used to the fasting state that it needs it to feel good and function well? The only thing I find positive during weekends is having the fuel for very long and intensive workouts, but I would love to know if there is any research on how the body adapts long-term to daily fasting, any thoughts on needing fasting to feel well. Thank you so much for all you do. You make my daily commute so much more fun. Awesome. Yeah, I don't think there's any research on really... I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong, Melanie. Have you ever done any or read any research on fasting that focuses on the way people feel as like a primary thing? I mean, I've seen studies where they talk about that people were able to stick to it or if they were hungry, but never like focusing all the energy that we feel and how great we feel. I've never seen an actual research study that even talked about that. Have you? I've seen a lot on mood, if you would qualify that as mood. I don't know if there's one on like vitality though. Right. That's what I mean. That's what I, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I have seen what you're talking about yet with mood, not specifically of what what she's saying. But really, I think, Melanie, it's just you realize, hey, this pattern feels really good to my body. And then you notice when you're not doing it. It's kind of like, you know, if you don't get a good night's sleep and then you feel sluggish the next day, you then realize, gosh, I feel better when I sleep well. It's This is the same kind of a thing. Or if there's foods that you know don't work well for you and you eat them and then you feel worse, you're like, hey, that food doesn't work well for me. Basically, you're realizing that a 12-hour eating window is not how your body feels its best. You're spinning it to say that your body needs fasting to feel good, but really you feel good when you're fasting, not that you need fasting to feel good. It's just that this is the state where you do feel good. I don't know. Am I explaining that all crazy? My main primary thought was that just what Jen said, <laughs> that like you feel so good with fasting that it's it's a mirror for how you feel when you're not in that state. So eating, <laughs> it is always an inflammatory process to some extent. It just is. For some people, it's way more inflammatory. For others, it's, you know, barely at all. Some people feel you know, fine after eating or great after eating. And they don't feel much different after eating compared to fasting even because they just, you know, aren't reacting to foods. Everything just works well. But a lot of people, if they do have an inflammatory response to food, and it could be a lot of things, it could be digestion issues. I mean, she says that she feels sluggish and bloated. It could be food reactions. It could be how your microbiome reacts. Basically, When you eat, it can be very telling as to how the food is actually affecting your body. So fasting is not making your body like unhealthy or making your body require fasting to be more healthy or be more effective, but it by itself, it might help support your digestion and help you solve health issues. I'm not saying this is necessarily a health issue, but fasting by itself is not going to change necessarily the response you have to a meal based on your current like what the meal is, how you eat it, what your microbiome is, because then you're in the eating state. So it's kind of like the fasting criteria kind of goes out the window. Does that make sense? So, I mean, I relate though. I do in a way feel like I need to do fasting to feel good, but it's mostly because I feel like the way Melanie feels, I'll get like sluggish and bloated after eating meals now. I think an exception would be if I ate just like fruit or something, like something that was like really easily digested, like really quick fuel. And in a way, and this is going to confuse people, so I I almost don't want to say it, but in a way, almost mimicking the fasted state and that it's just like pure energy. 
you know? My body's definitely used to functioning in the fasted state now. If I overeat and my window is too long, I feel sluggish and bloated. On a normal day, when I open my window and I eat, I don't feel bloated. You know, it's it's evening, so I feel like that's a normal time to feel tired. It's evening. But I don't really know that I would say I feel sluggish. But if I go on vacation and open my window really, really early, yeah, sluggish. <laughs> and after several days of it, yes, bloated. It's just that overly full feeling that I don't like to feel. Yeah, and actually to that point, just because you're talking about like feeling. <laughs> she doesn't say she has IBS or anything like that. So I don't want to like prescribe that onto her. Well, she said she has Crohn's. Oh, wait. Oh, she does. Oh, yeah. My bad. Now I feel like I, I should have been more strong than what I was saying before because actually everything I said really applies. Yes. If the foods you're eating are exacerbating your GI symptoms for whatever reason, 100%, it's normal that you're feeling sluggish or bloated after them. And it totally makes sense why you feel great fasting. No, you don't need the fasting to feel great. But if your GI state and track and everything is in a state where it is reacting intensely to food, it's just natural that you probably won't feel so well after it. So that would be really mitigated by really, really looking at your your food choices. And I have something else I'd like to throw in there as a teacher and as a mother and Melanie says that her two-year-old toddlers refuse to eat if she's not eating with them. And I think it's time to teach them that mama doesn't have to eat for you to eat. You can sit with them and not eat. And, you know, they'll eat. I wonder if their teacher eats with them. She might just be there with because, you know, teachers don't always eat with the kids either. So there's two of them. If they're both eating and you're sitting there with your clean, fast beverage, they're probably not going to notice that you're not eating. They probably want you with them. It's not so much the act of you putting food into your mouth. They're two. They're going to be getting older. If you don't want to eat with them for 12 hours, say, Mama's not going to eat right now. Mama will sit here with you. I'm going to have this coffee. Just tell them. I'm really glad you brought that up. They'll eat. I promise you a toddler will eat when they are hungry. And they're not going to refuse to eat if they're hungry. I'm really glad you brought that up. You know, I read a book, French Kids Eat Anything or Eat Everything or something. I didn't read the whole book. So that was a lie. Sorry. I didn't read the book. I read the summary of the book or I read the like the free, you know how Amazon will send you the free. Like the first, like, yeah, such a tease. It kills me. <laughs> yeah. I didn't buy the whole book, but I read the free sample. That's the wording I'm looking for. And I read the reviews about it. And basically, the premise of that book is that kids all around the world do not play games with food the way American children do. They just eat their food, whether they're in, you know, Asia eating scorpions. I mean, whatever. They eat whatever there is. They're not picky eaters, but then we're raising all these picky eaters who are like telling us, you know, I remember when Cal was a baby, I was like, he only eats things that are beige. And I let him do that. I let Cal only eat foods that were beige. And so I catered to that. I would like to go back in time and not cater to that. But I was panicked. I was like, well, he only wants to eat these chicken nuggets and vanilla pudding and French fries. I'm okay, look, that sounds terrible. But that crackers, he was he ate those things. If I gave him carrots, he spit them out. Well, I should have just kept presenting the carrots. You know what's actually really interesting to that point? I just finished reading Kate Shanahan's Fat Burn Fix, and she has a section on like teaching herself to like certain foods that you don't like. And they've done studies on kids and taste buds. And I guess it takes 10 exposures of our taste buds to something new 
before there's like a definitive answer as to whether our taste buds like it or not. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. The way you do it is you have like a really small amount of the food you're trying to get to like at a time when you're like a little bit hungry and you do it like 10 times over a few weeks. And then if by 10 times you don't like it, then you can just skip up. But (laughs) I like most foods. So I was thinking about this. Like, I think it's so interesting when you eat mostly real foods and stop eating processed foods and especially with fasting. The hyper palatable foods. Yeah. Yeah. Like most quote food I like. The only ones I don't like are things that I think I actually have allergies to like olives or. Yum. I love olives. Well, like me and fish. I don't like fish. I can't understand this. I can't understand this. I wish I did. But the, the thing is, is that, like I said, would like to go back in time and be a different mom and not cater to that because now it sounds just so silly. When I think back, I'm like, you know, my child will only eat chicken nuggets. Well, okay, he'll eat something else. If I give him something else and he's hungry, he will eat it. They will eat it. Anyway, do what I say, not what I did, right? Yep, what you learned. It's true. Hi, friends. I'm about to tell you how to get three pounds of organic chicken thighs, two pounds of grass-fed, grass-finished ground beef, or one pound of premium grass-fed, grass-finished steak tips, all for free, plus $20 off. That's right. We're talking pounds of meat for free, plus $20 off. Friends, I love meat and seafood. My favorite way to get it is ButcherBox. It has been for years, and it's one of those things where I just sort of become more and more obsessed the more I use it. Especially with all the greenwashing that's going on today with meat and seafood, there's a lack of transparency, it can be hard to know what you're actually getting, and it can be expensive. ButcherBox addresses all of that. By directly partnering with farmers and fishermen, ButcherBox cuts out the middleman of the grocery store and directly delivers delicious meat and seafood straight to your door. And they have the highest standards. Their salmon, for example, is wild caught. Their beef is 100% grass fed and 100% grass finished. Their chicken is free range and organic, and it all tastes delicious. I love their chicken, love their meat, love their seafood. They have amazing scallops as well. And you can really find the collection of food that you want that works for you and your family. They have curated boxes, so you can get exactly what you want as fresh as possible because yes, meat and seafood that is immediately frozen is fresher than meat that is waiting out and never frozen. That's because it's frozen at its peak of freshness. It's funny because people kind of think it would be the opposite. Like, oh, I need never frozen meat and seafood. No, 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 no. You want frozen. You want meat and seafood that was immediately frozen and then shipped to you, which is what ButcherBox does. I eat a lot of steak at restaurants. ButcherBox's fillets are divine, way better than anything I would get at a restaurant. Their other cuts are amazing as well. With their seafood, I know I can trust them that I'm actually getting what they say because yes, there is a lot of scams in the seafood industry and their chicken also tastes amazing. It's free range and organic and tastes delicious. With ButcherBox, you don't have to worry about what's for dinner and ButcherBox has an incredible offer for our audience. You can have your choice of a weeknight meal essential for free in every order for a whole year. Just go to butcherbox.com slash ifpodcast and use ifpodcast to choose either three pounds of organic chicken thighs, two pounds of grass-fed, grass-finished ground beef, or one pound of grass-fed, grass-finished premium steak tips plus $20 off. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash ifpodcast and use code ifpodcast 
to choose your free offer and get that $20 off. Butcherbox.com slash ifpodcast with code ifpodcast. I will put all this information in the show notes. All right, we have a question from Megan, and the subject is smoking and intermittent fasting. Megan says, hey, girls, super fan here. Love your show. You opened a whole new world for me when I found your podcast. My question has to do with smoking cigarettes and intermittent fasting. I recently quit smoking. Yay. And that was Megan saying yay. But I think Melanie and I would also say yay. Yes. Yay. And she says, and wonder what information you can provide to me about whether or not intermittent fasting may help prevent weight gain after quitting smoking. I am beyond thrilled about finally taking my health more seriously and quitting, but am worried about the potential weight gain. Thanks so much. You guys are the best. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Megan, for your question. And again, applause for you for quitting smoking. So I did a lot of searching. Unsurprisingly, there are not any studies specifically on intermittent fasting and mitigating weight gain after smoking. However, there are a lot of studies on weight gain after smoking. So yes, many people do gain weight after smoking and There's a lot of potential reasons for that. One is the change in your metabolism. Nicotine can actually boost your metabolism or cause you to burn more. There's actually a lot of really fascinating studies on nicotine and why it makes us not hungry and things it does. Like one thing is they think it maybe activates like beige fat, which is like sort of like brown fat, which is like a type of body fat that is more metabolically active. Another study found that it stimulates compounds sort of similar to, I'm trying to remember exactly what it said. I think it was like basically like the sympathetic nervous system. So adrenaline and things like that, it taps into similar pathways and encourages the body to burn fat. So nicotine itself actually supports weight loss. So when you when you cut that out, you're making hormonal changes in your body. You're making like chemical changes. So that's not something that's super easy to mitigate with the exception of if you were, you know, using a nicotine patch or something like that. Also with smoking, it can alter your food preferences. So they find people who quit smoking often start craving more sweet foods. And especially if you're eating that in processed forms, that makes a lot of sense. And then a lot of people turn to food as a substitute for like the psychological effects of tobacco. So like Instead of smoking, it's like a habit. They turn to eating. It's like that oral fixation, right? You know, you've been filling that need with the cigarette going into your mouth, and now you're putting something else into your mouth. Yeah, the oral fixation. And then also a lot of people obviously are turning to smoking for anxiety relief. And so they might switch that out for food instead, which has a tendency to, in the moment, (laughs) can make people feel better, regardless of the long-term implications. So they've actually done a lot of studies to see how putting people who stop smoking on diets that are intended to either make them lose weight or, you know, not gain weight and see how they respond. And what they found is that in the quitting process, because normally it's like lining up with while you're quitting, if the diets are too restrictive, it usually backfires because quitting smoking by itself is very taxing on willpower. So when you couple that with a restrictive diet, it doesn't usually (laughs) go so well. That said, when people are trying to quit smoking and they're put on personalized dietary protocols that are not too restrictive and are meant to help them lose weight, and then especially if it's coupled with addressing their fear of gaining weight, 
that psychological aspect seems to be huge. Basically, (laughs) the key, it seems, to not gaining weight after smoking is to not have a fear that you're going to gain weight and to be following a dietary protocol that would encourage weight loss. So basically, that says to me that intermittent fasting is sort of perfect for this situation because we know all of the benefits of intermittent fasting. We know how it supports the body, how it does support naturally a fat-burning state. And we know that, you know, it's not based on this over-restriction. Like, it's not like a chronic crash diet. It's something that is very sustainable and supportive of the body. So I think, hands down, intermittent fasting could be, like, one of the best ways to potentially mitigate fat gain after quitting smoking. And if you haven't been doing intermittent fasting before and you start doing it whilst quitting smoking, I mean, there's even that you could completely reframe instead of having fear of gaining weight, there's the potential of trying this new dietary lifestyle, which, you know, could completely revolutionize your fat burning potential. So yeah, you could reframe into possibly losing weight, even though you're quitting smoking. Well, I have very short thoughts, and they're a little smart alecky. <laughs> the question was whether or not intermittent fasting may help prevent weight gain after quitting smoking. The answer is yes. <laughs> may help. It may help. Sorry. Is that too short? No. I, th- I think what you said is great. And yeah, I think that it's probably, just like you said, Melanie, at the end there, it's probably one of your best bets to help prevent the weight gain after quitting smoking. So. You know, I've I've never I've never smoked, so I don't know how hard it is to quit. But I, I mean, I've watched people quit smoking, and I, I so I do know it's hard. She just said she quit. I wonder how she quit. I see no problem with using like nicotine patches or something like that too. I agree to quit, especially since low dose nicotine potentially even has health benefits. So, yep, not to be controversial, but yeah, I know, I know, I've seen that too. <laughs> Not that I haven't experimented with nicotine patches. Have you? Yeah. Okay. I think the most fascinating research on them is their potential therapeutic use for people with Parkinson's because of how it regulates the the dopamine system. It's very interesting. But I don't chew nicotine gum because that would break the fast. Exactly. Yeah. We get that question a lot, though, about nicotine gum and nicotine lozenges. We recommend the patch. Definitely. For people who are not wanting to break the fast. But yay, Megan. I'm so glad. And you know, don't worry about the, you know, even if you do gain a little weight after quitting smoking, know that you're really helping your body. And so it'll work itself out after that transition. Exactly. Love it. All right. So the next question comes from Kate. The subject is increased energy after eating. Oh, this is kind of like the flip side of. I know. I I, I love this one. When I read it, I was like, I, I could answer that one. All right. So Kate says, hi, ladies. I've just found your podcast in the last week and I've been doing IF for three months. I started at the beginning of your podcast episodes, so I have many left to listen to. And I apologize if you have already answered this, but I've heard you answer listener questions about feeling sluggish after eating like we just did. She said, I am the exact opposite. I feel super energized after eating and sometimes have trouble sleeping after dinner. Just to let you know where I am, I was doing a six-hour eating window for the first two months and lost 10 pounds in that time, but wasn't fasting clean, using nut pods, creamer, and my coffee. So I learned from you ladies to cut that out. Thank you. The third month, I saw no further progress on the scale despite a clean fast and shifted to fasted workouts and one meal a day, but I'm still in a weight loss plateau. I do have more weight to lose, but I plan to stick with it. 
Does it mean I'm not in ketosis if I feel energetic after eating? Am I doing something wrong? I've ordered both Jen's books and can't wait to read them. Thank you so much, Kate. This is a great question. And I would actually say, Kate, if you have extra energy that you feel after eating, I think that means you actually are in ketosis because sometimes ketosis keeps me from being able to sleep well. If I don't eat enough, I'm too energetic to relax. And I find, just like I've talked about how sugar gives me restless legs, not eating enough in my eating window makes me toss and turn and feel restless when I'm trying to sleep and it gives me the energy of the ketosis. Yeah, that's what I think. My prediction would be, especially if you're doing fasted workouts and one meal a day, and I'm also curious if you're defining one meal a day as a very short eating window, it's very likely that you know, you're deeply in ketosis and that's the energy that you're feeling. So not doing something wrong, you are probably really doing, you know, some right things if ketosis is what you want. But you may want to have, you know, see if you need your eating window to be a little longer. Notice that you're doing fasted workouts. So I would focus on how your body composition might be changing. Take some photos wearing tight clothes like your goal clothes and see if the fit of your clothes is changing over time, even if the scale is not changing. You know, you you may be at a weight loss plateau, but not at a fat loss plateau. Those are two different things. You could be losing fat, building muscle. It looks like a plateau on the scale, but it's not a plateau in your body. So that's what I would suspect is happening. I would suspect lots of fat burning. It sounds like ketosis, the extra energy, and body recomposition. I love what you said. I was wondering, so when she says, like, does it mean I'm not in ketosis if I feel energetic after eating? Do you think she's asking about, like, she's not in ketosis specifically after eating or she's not in ketosis? I think she's asking, since she feels good after eating, does that mean she's never getting into ketosis? And so I would say no. I actually have great energy. And really, I often don't have a real sluggish feeling. I mean, I like to get a bit early. Have you ever done that chronotype quiz? I can't remember the the sleep doctor that has that. Is it where you're like an owl or like a wolf? Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm a wolf. Or there's like a bear and a wolf. (laughs) I'm the lion. The lion is is the one who wakes up really early and then goes to bed early. I just did it yesterday because one of the moderators was talking about it. And I had done it before, but I was like, let me do it again. I'm a lion. It's basically your whole circadian rhythm. Yeah. Your your personal, you know, circadian rhythm of of when you feel most energetic. You know, for me, I'm just I like to go to bed early. <laughs> but I look back my whole life to college and I was always the friend who would sneak away and go to bed early, you know. <laughs> People say like everybody's that type. And I'm just like, I don't think so cuz I have never like that ever. And you have. You're not. I mean, the people who say everyone is like that are the people who are like that and think everyone should be like them. I really believe that a lot of people do that. They say, this is how I am. This is how everyone really is. But you're just lying to yourself. No, that's not true. (laughs) I mean, I think the fact that like, even on days I was severely sleep deprived and was like, tonight is the night I am going to bed. It's like 6 p.m. You just physically can't. Well, I would be tired, you know, during the day, but then come, come evening, be like, hey, it's time to party. Well, it's just like me trying to sleep in. I cannot sleep in. Yeah. You know, I went to the beach with friends. We were up really, really late and I'm going to sleep in the next day. No, 
I wake up 6 a.m., my eyes pop open whether I went to bed at 3 a.m. or 9 p.m. I wake up first thing in the morning. So that's just the way it is. So the whole point of that was <laughs> that eating doesn't necessarily make me sluggish. Now, if I ate too much, I feel sluggish. That's the difference. If I eat so much, if I eat too much, it makes me feel sluggish. But if I if I don't, I continue to feel super energetic. In fact, too energetic because of the ketosis. I found it interesting that there's this idea, or like she had this idea, and I'm sure others do as well, that with intermittent fasting, that it's like a sign of success if you are feeling sluggish after eating. So that's not the message that we want to put out there. It's not unusual to feel sluggish after eating, but it's not wrong to either feel sluggish or not feel sluggish. On the flip side, it's okay to feel tired after eating. It's like a lot of people think, it's what you just said, like a lot of people think that you either need to feel really energetic after eating and that's correct or, well, I guess the opposite. I've learned this with these large Facebook groups more than anything else. People will look to what happens to one person, and then if that doesn't happen for them, they immediately think something's wrong. Like, well, I don't get the metallic taste in my mouth. I must be broken. Well, no, not everyone gets that. You know, even in ketosis, not everyone gets that. So there's not any one right way it has to be, and then if you don't have that, then you're wrong. Some people lose pounds, but not inches. Some people lose inches, but not pounds, and neither is wrong. (laughs) It's just what your body's doing. Okay, we have a question from Shay. And the subject is fasting question. Shay says, good afternoon. I have been doing IF for about 10 months now, 100% clean fasting. I do one meal a day and average a 20 to 24 hour fast each day, depending on my schedule. I like to stick to a two or three hour eating window, but currently working from home while also homeschooling my son has led to the accidental 24 hour fast from time to time. I used to get so cold when I first started IF Now I am noticing that I feel so hot after I have had my one meal a day and have closed my window. My one meal has been based on whatever sounds good. Lately, that has been a homemade spinach salad mix, homemade barbecue chicken breast, and some yogurt with granola for dessert. My question is, why am I hot after eating? I searched the Facebook group but didn't see any real answer. Thank you for taking the time to read this. Thank you for everything you do for us. I'm so grateful for your knowledge, and I can't wait for the book release tomorrow. I keep waiting for it to appear in my Kindle library so I can see that Shay wrote this in June when Fast Feast Repeat was about to pop into her library. So exciting. All right, Shay, thank you for your question. Yes, so it is very common to feel hot after eating, and that's typically due to the thermic effect of food. So when we eat foods, a portion of calories burned during digesting that food generates heat. It's also the reason that certain types of like protein is quote more metabolic boosting or, or counts as quote less calories than like carbs or fat. And that's because the thermic effect of protein is around 30%, I think. So like 30% of the calories burned when you're burning protein are actually just the metabolism digesting that protein and that materializes in the form of heat. So eating is a I mean, depending on what you're eating, but tends to be a hot process just just by the metabolic process of generating energy. That's like a really simple answer, but... But it's true. If I eat more carbs, I'm more likely to be hotter. The more carbs, the hotter. I'm glad you said that. Carbs in particular tend to 
boost the metabolic rate. Yep. I can feel it cranking up. And I have even taken my body temperature just for fun because, you know, I love to <laughs> see what's happening. I'll feel super hot. I'll take my temperature. It'll be 99 or something like that. And I can I can feel it. And I know I can just feel the heat radiating off of me. It's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So especially if you eat like protein and carbs, that's probably going to be the most like heat stimulating meal compared to something like a low carb, higher fat, if it's lower protein. And we talked about this a lot before, but for example, if they do studies where they massively, massively overfeed people, when you way overfeed them just with carbs, the body's response, yes, it turns a little bit of those carbs to fat, but it actually preferentially tends to just like crank up the metabolism and you just get really, really hot. That is 100% true for me. Yeah. (laughs) So funny because people think there's this idea with calories. Oh, if you eat more calories than you burned... Well, it is true if you eat more calories than you burned, then you would store it. But that doesn't mean that if you eat a certain amount of calories, you're only going to burn a certain amount because the body can make the choice to, instead of storing it, burn them instead. Yeah, that's the whole, you know, Jason Fung explained it to me in a way the first time I ever really went, oh, you know, we all hear of it as calories in, calories out. And that's a great math formula. That is based on the assumption, well, two assumptions. One is that all calories in are treated the same, which we know there aren't. But the other is that calories out is static, and that's not true. And the whole idea of I have had my metabolism tested and my resting metabolic rate is X. You know, we assume that that's like a static number that's never going to change, but that's so not true. Our bodies can crank up calories out or crank down calories out, and you can't control that. Yeah, actually, I just mentioned Kate Shanahan's Fat Burn Fix, which we'll put a link to that in the show notes, by the way. But she talks about the metabolism and she says, she says like the metabolism isn't fixed. It's not a certain number. Your metabolism changes based on what energy you need. Basically, it just, it just changes based on what, on what your cells are getting, what you're eating. Which is why when I see someone, it makes me cringe now when someone's like, my TDEE is blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, it isn't. It's not. Total daily energy expenditure, that's what TDEE. And, you know, in some diet circles, that's, you know, people live and die by their TDEE. And, you know, your body is is not working like that. We talked about NEAP before, which is non-exercise activity thermogenesis. That's basically a number, in a way, of calories that your body can just, just burn. And, like, it happens from, like, fidgeting and, like, you know, just movement that you do throughout the day, but it can just, it can vary wildly. And the thing is some people's NEAT is really, really low. So like they'll, they'll overeat and NEAT doesn't really adjust and they gain weight from it. Some people, the NEAT just like goes through the roof and they just naturally burn off all that extra calories without like trying to. Now, see, that's interesting. That made me think, you know, my restless legs after eating sugar, I wonder if that's related. You know, it's like I can't be still. It's like my neat is gone crazy. I've thought about that because I used to get restless legs. Honestly, want to have an episode just on restless legs. Well, I know it's not magnesium. You know, sometimes people say it's magnesium. You know, I've had my magnesium levels tested and they're fine. And that's the one thing I have always been able to, you know, taking every day. It could be iron. Yeah, I think there's like five things. One, magnesium, not magnesium, iron. Looking back when I was really anemic and didn't know it, that's when my restless legs were through the roof. So, but what's interesting is that it, it doesn't happen. You know, there's that definite correlation of too much sugar, restless legs. Yeah. To the sugar point, 
I think it could be like two things. It could be that, like just too much energy. I keep referencing her book, but Kate Shanahan, she posits that it's peripheral nerve changes from sugar consumption, which I've also read in another book as well. And I think the, f- the fifth thing I think is likely involves dopamine. That's another reason I was experimenting with nicotine patches because of the restless legs. And well, yeah, I feel it from, from too much sugar, like I said, but also, you know, how I mentioned earlier, if I don't eat enough and I, you know, have way too much ketosis energy, that also manifests itself after I've eaten, but only after I've eaten. Like I never have restless legs during the fast ever, but if I eat and haven't eaten enough, then I'll feel that little restless leg thing happening from like, I guess my body's trying to get rid of the ketones. I don't know. It feels like too much energy. I also wonder, and this is why I don't know why this is, but restless legs are the worst. They really are. They're, and my husband's like, be still. And I'm like, I wish. Thank you. And for people who've never had them, like they don't sound that bad, but they're just the worst. They're just so unpleasant and there's nothing, you, you can't stop it. It's like, how do you, I don't know. You can only stop it by really getting up and walking around. And, you know, it always happens though, like when you're sitting in an airplane seat and when you're trying to go to bed at night or sitting on the couch and or sitting in an auditorium, those are the times that it's really, really, you know, unpleasant. Now I'm wondering, because you were speaking about how it happens at night, which same for me and the research I've done on it, it's typically usually at night for people. I wonder if that's because if it is something related to, you know, metabolic issues, maybe, you know, most people tend to be, you know, less insulin sensitive and have more metabolic issues at night. I, I'm just theorizing. I wonder if that has any connection at all. I don't know, but ooh, ooh, did I tell you this? This is exciting. You know, the predict to study that you're going to be in it, right? Yes. I got the box of stuff. Oh, you did? Yeah. The box came. It's predict three is where we are now. So it's food. Well, yeah. Like, what is it? <laughs> They're testing your response to things. I'm going to be wearing a continuous glucose monitor for seven days and they sent me one. I mean, I have to send it back. What if I like didn't send it back? What would they do? Hmm. <laughs> I really want to keep it. Anyway, I'm supposed to send it back. I will send it back because I'm a rules follower. But you have to take a poop sample and send that to them. So they're looking at your gut microbiome. They're looking at your response. And they have these muffins that they send. And I'm going to have to eat muffins in the morning, like for a couple days. I know I'm going to have to do it. You're committed. Well, um, you know, this is why I said no to predict two, even though I was approved for the study about a year ago. I was like, I just don't have time and I don't want to, I, I don't have time to fool with all this. But this is just all you know, doing it here at home. I also think people had to go get blood drawn at a lab, I, but now it's all just self-collected. You do it all at home and it's only seven days. I think it's easier than Predict2 was, but they they have an app called Zoe. The reason everyone has to eat these same exact muffins that they actually sent, you have to eat them at certain times and then wait a certain amount of time and they're going to see what your blood glucose does. So they're seeing what, you know, with this exact meal, what happens. That's exciting. I know. And so then they'll also, you know, analyze my gut microbiome and see. And so then they make personalized suggestions based on on the results. I'm so excited. I'll be talking about it more, I'm sure. When are you starting it? I probably won't have started next time we record. I'm not sure. But I'm going to the beach with Chad. And I want to wait till I've been home a few days. And I'm also planning it around my schedule because I want to have the breakfast muffins on days when I don't have podcast episodes scheduled. I have it all kind of planned out around that. So in about a week, I'll be starting it in about a week from today. 
Yeah, I've had my CGM in the box for like a month now. I was going to do it a few weeks ago because I'm bringing on a CGM company onto the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, but I'm getting surgery. Oh gosh. In two days. And I was like, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to deal with like monitoring all of this stuff. I'm already stressed about surgery. So maybe we'll be doing it at a similar time. I was going to maybe start it after, after surgery. Well, I want you to figure out a way that, that CGM company, figure out a way for them to get one for me. I need one too. Do it. After they come on my show, get one for me. And cause I will talk about it. I'm so interested. I want to know what my body is doing. I've been fascinated ever since I saw that Aaron Seagal video, you know, what is the best diet for humans that I, this was 2017. I've been fascinated since then when he talked about, you know, that we all have a individual glucose response. I was like, I'm dying to know what mine is. I have so many questions for when I interview them because I think my biggest question is because people will say, oh, you should have slow digesting carbs and it's better to have like an extended blood sugar release rather than, you know, a spike. But then there's the the idea that maybe the healthiest thing is to have like a high spike, but a short spike and then back to baseline. Everything I read, and I talk about this in Fast Feast Repeat, that what we don't want is for our, our curve to look like a scary roller coaster. You don't want it to look like high up, low dip, high up, low dip, like you're on, you know, the monster scary adult roller coaster. Instead, you want it to look like the little kid's roller coaster with a gentle up and a gentle down. Yeah. Say it was a roller coaster. So say it's like a fasting roller coaster. So it's like straight. And then the comparison between either like a really high, like one up, but then straight down, like a um, like a Tower of Terror type thing compared to up really high and then kind of like slowly going down. I think the goal is to never have it go up really high. That's what I actually think there might be a nuance there because I'm not sure that a acute high spike, if it goes down quickly, is a problem. I feel like that would make me feel bad. Like I would feel that crash. Yeah, I guess it would depend. I'm, I don't know. I've never, I haven't tested my blood, so I don't really know. But <laughs> what was interesting is I had a friend, I haven't heard from him in a while, actually. He's was in my Facebook group and he's a doctor in Canada. And every now and then he would send me like, he was using a, a CGM and he would be like, look what happened with fasting. And it was just interesting. And I've been wanting to have one ever since. Yeah. I'm really, really excited. I remember, well, Paul Saladino, you know, the carnivore guy. Yeah. He is like being all controversial now because he was carnivore for like the longest time. Now he's eating like a lot of honey. Okay. That's so interesting. Yeah. Cause he realized that he felt like his body needed carbs. But he did an experiment with a CGM while bringing back the honey to see what happened. And it, he did an episode on it, but it basically was like high spikes right after the honey, but then, you know, pretty quick back to baseline. So not like an extended higher blood sugar. I think the main problem is the extended higher blood sugar, which is why I get nervous about a lot of people on keto diets who do experience extended higher blood sugars. I'm fascinated by that. Yeah, because that's the whole thing that, you know, with type 2 diabetes that they don't want to see constant high blood sugar. That's where the damage occurs if your blood sugar is high. And a lot of people, a lot of people on keto seem to have like resting blood sugars that are high. And they call it like, you know, I don't remember. There's a word for it. But basically the idea that the insulin receptors are, you know, becoming sensitive in a way, like they're choosing to reject sugar, to keep enough sugar around because it's low carb. But I don't know. I'm very fascinated by all of it. So we shall see. 
And I think really a lot of these questions are not fully answered even. Yeah. Like, like science is still figuring it out. Anyway, I'm really fascinated. I can't wait to see what I find out. But, like, I, I'm not sure I'll respond well to their muffins because they're very processed. And I that's the kind of thing I would not eat on its own in isolation. I never eat highly processed carbs by themselves, ever. Like, you know, I might have, you know, tortilla chips, but I'm going to have them with hummus or with guacamole or with, you know, something that's going to slow down the absorption of just carbs. Like, I would never open my window with a cookie. Or a muffin. Well, they, I wonder if they'll mind if I like slather it in peanut butter. Probably. <laughs> yeah, you've got to have. I've got to. I've got to have it like they tell me to. Just the muffin. So I might be like lying on the floor. I might be sluggish that day. <laughs> the things we do for science. I know. I know. I'm so excited. I've been having that. You know, the fear of missing out. I've been watching my friends, the moderators that went through it, that did predict two and getting their results back and. <sighs> Anyway, I was like, why didn't I just do it? Even though it was a bad time, I should have just done it. But anyway. I haven't tested my blood sugar. I used to test it like religiously every single night. The best blood sugars I had, hands down, was when I was doing one meal a day, tons of fruit and low fat. And my blood sugar was always so great, like the next day. That's telling. Yeah. And then I feel like it got wonky. So, all right. Well... This has been absolutely wonderful. So if you would like to submit your own questions to the podcast, you can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com or you can go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. The show notes for today's episode will put links to everything that we talked about. That will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 180. You can follow us on Instagram. We are at ifpodcast. You can follow me. I'm at Melanie Avalon. You can follow Jen. She's Jen Stevens. You can also join. I made a new Facebook group recently for people who want to do breath testing for carbs, fats, or ketones. <laughs> and that's called Lumen Lovers and Biosense Biohackers. And yeah, anything else, Jen, you would like to throw out there? Nope. I think that's it. Good luck with your surgery. Oh, isn't so okay. Next time we talk, it'll be done. Yay. I'm so excited. I'm so scared. I'm so scared. <laughs> but I guess it's over before. You even realize, right? Yep, exactly. You'll be under anesthesia. I know. <laughs> okay, well, I will talk to you next week or sometime. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember that everything discussed on the show is not medical advice. We're not doctors. You can also check out our other podcasts, Intermittent Fasting Stories and the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. The music was composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.